Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. In 1833, Oxford Press, and again, this is what makes all this so difficult to to pin down what text you actually have in your Bible. In 1833, Oxford Press began reprinting the original 1611 King James Bible with near perfection, meaning with no... um, Printing errors, they didn't print any of the updates, any of the changes. They just began reprinting the the 1611 King James Bible. They they began printing the 1611 exactly as as it was made by the translators, but they printed it with almost zero printing errors. Now, this caused a bit of a a bit of a problem. Is this, this is what this is why, you know, sometimes you don't sometimes you don't realize where you are until you have something to compare it to. Right. So doing so allowed the public to see the extent to which changes had been made over time and people were starting to get upset. They're like, Wait a minute. Oxford started printing the 1611 King James Bible again. The 1611, not, they didn't just call it the 1611, they printed the 1611. And they did it with almost zero printing errors, so you had the pure 1611 in your hands with no problems. Well, they also had their 1762 and their 1769 and their 1631. And they're looking at it next to the 1611 and they're saying, what have we done? Is this okay? <laughs> like, this is not good. You know, we, we, we've, we've made these changes to the Bible, and the negative effect was that it demonstrated to the public how modernized the Bible was by the time we got to the, 16, uh, the 1760s. So now, now they could see these 17, up to the 1760s, compared with the 1611, they got to see them side by side, and they're like, man, we've, a, a lot has changed. You know, is this okay? And here's where we get to, we're about to get to some good news. The old spelling and grammar were difficult to read, even in the 1800s. 
so they see the differences, but they also realize, okay, we, we've made these changes, but I can't read the 1611 anymore without, without struggling because of the spelling. But my 1769, I can read very easy. <laughs> and there were no hyphens and there were no apostrophes in, in my 1611, but they are in the 1769. And so we've made these changes, and I don't know if I'm comfortable with the idea of making changes to the Word of God, but I sure like my modern Bible. <laughs> and I, I like the idea, you know, people were like, I, I, I read the 1611. No, you don't. If you had a 1611 in your hand, you would, you would be struggling, <laughs> you, just like everybody in class was last week, trying to read it and stumbling through it. It says the same thing, but the spelling is completely different, and it makes it, that makes a huge difference. The orthography and the spelling, it, it, you change those, and you've changed a lot. You get some of this old Gothic writing, especially from the 1600s, and you try and read it today. Even if it was spelled the same, it would still be difficult for you to read because it's not a type font that we're used to and that we're comfortable with. We almost do everything in some form of you know, time, Times New Romans today, and so um, it'd just be very hard to go back and read. Uh, so the modernization continued, though it did force people to pay close attention to the refinements being made. So th this event was, was accidental in that it gave people an opportunity to compare where they were, and this just kind of heightened this attitude from the 1760s to the 1800s. We don't want any more changes to the Bible. Okay, we, we can see what you've done. It's great. Don't change anything else. We don't want to see any more changes. At this point, the Bible is it's, it's, it's wonderful. Don't, don't touch it. Leave it alone. And um, the people in general began to notice that these various editions were, were in circulation and there began to be a lack of uniformity. And that's a problem. You know, so they realize we have these different editions. Uh, they are easier to read than the 1611. So we're okay with that. But if you have a 1762 and a 1769 and a 1633, you know, the, the italicized words are different. The punctuation is different. Mine has apostrophes. His does not have apostrophes. We're, we're trying to compare our text and read and study together, but we've, we've got a lack of uniformity. So we've got a problem. And so the idea from here began to be, there needs to be a standardized version rather than having 20 different editions of the King James Bible. We need... We need a, a proper standardized text so that when it is printed and it rolls off the machine, everybody's got the same Bible in their hand, or at least extremely close. So far, the differences we've looked at, hardly anybody would ever notice that, that any of those differences are there. It's, they're almost exactly the same. And if you, saw, if, if you were reading an NIV and I was reading a King James Bible, we'd have a problem. <laughs> If you're reading a new King James, I'm reading the King James Bible, we'd, have a, we'd immediately have a problem. But I could have any of you open to a verse and read it right now. And even though we know there, there are very tiny differences between our Bibles in this room right now, hardly anybody would notice it. Because they're so similar. There, there's such uniformity at this point that, that they're, they're all just about exactly the same. It just depends on who you got your text from, whether it's Cambridge or whether it's Oxford, 
or now you have the Schuyler Bibles, which claim to be Canterbury, and, and you know, you have the, these, and then the Thomas Nelson publishers, and you've got uh, local church publishers, and so it depends on what text they go back to and, and print into their King James Bible, but they're going to be 99.9% the same, which is pretty good. All right, the people in general began to notice this, and, and they noticed this lack of uniformity. And uh, now in America, the same problem was noticed, but in America, anyone had the freedom to print the Bible as they pleased. They were not subject to the control of the crown of England. And in England, that's a huge problem. That's a big deal. The king said, no, you're not printing a Bible. And if you print it, off with his head. So uh, you, could, you can take that risk if you want to, but most people were not willing to do that, especially when what the printers were printing was the King James Bible. Why would you risk your life to print something that's already being printed? Well, in America, you, know, you had the freedom to print what you want. The American Bible Society established a seven-member uh, committee to review this lack of conformity between the editions of the KJV. Their plan was to verify the integrity of updates and then to create conformity between them. So they were going to look at the, the top six editions. They put this committee together. They were going to review the changes that were made and try to verify, should they have made this change? Did it help? Did it cause harm to the Bible? Did it change the Bible in a way that we would not be find acceptable? Was this an improvement on what we, what we had? And so they looked at all, all these versions and compared them to the, the 1611. And uh, the work began in 1848. Let me uh, make some notes on this for you on the board. This is the American Bible Society. And in 1848, they began their work. They had nine rules that were given to the committee to follow. And they created a book that had columns for each of the six editions of the KJV they compared. So they, they were given nine rules to follow and, uh, and, and to show their work. They created a book that had six columns. And in those columns, they could, they could make notes about what they were finding. And then which is a wonderful thing because then you can go back and you can see what they found laid out in columns side by side, verse by verse. And you can see where, where things changed, when they changed, why they changed, if it was a good change or a bad change. Should we reject it? Should we put it back the way it was? Should we follow a different edition? That was kind of the, the idea. And they were trying to create a uniform standardized King James text. And, uh, they were to take the 1611 and compare it with the editions produced by Cambridge, Oxford, London, and Edinburgh. So they, they and they, all these were to be compared to the 1611. So these are all your editions throughout time from 1611 to 1769, essentially. They were to examine orthography, capital letters, words in italic, and punctuation. And miraculously, throughout time, those are the only changes that have been made to the King James Bible. And, and just so you, so you get that straight in your mind, you, you have the actual, the original text, all right? So 
These are the words, uh, the words the translators got from the Word of God. Right? These are not, you know, when it when it comes to grammar, if you're a translator, you don't you don't translate grammar. You've got to take it from the grammar here and put it into the grammar over here, and and to some extent that is somewhat subjective how, how you're going to lay out a sentence is we can all write a sentence and write it in a different way and it'll say the same thing just you may choose to punctuate it a different way than i would you may choose to set it up a different way than i would but it, it can in the end say the exact same thing and so when they're going from hebrew to english and then when you think of the limitations put on the king james translators what you end up with in the 1611 is kind of a a raw first edition of the English Bible. Now, a very good raw first edition of the English Bible, but obviously as the grammar progressed and as things uh, you know, moved on over time, they brought it up to, to, a, to a reasonable standard so that it could be used in modern English, which is a blessing. That's not a bad thing. But when these men over time made changes, they didn't change this. They didn't change the foundational text. They changed punctuation. They changed orthography. They changed italicized words. That, that's a very important distinction that you have to make. The foundational text remained exactly the same, and that's what we're gonna what we're gonna get to here in just a second. When when people hear this, and I can only imagine people listening online, they're going, what changes were made to the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Again, the question is, what were the changes? They didn't change the Word of God. They didn't change even the words that the King James translators took from Hebrew and Greek into English. They changed punctuation. They changed italicized words. They changed spelling. You know, they, they changed the orthography. The, the, those are very important differences to make. Is what people like to pretend, you know, people on my side like to pretend nothing has ever changed about the King James Bible. I have the original King James authorized version and I read it every day. No, you don't. You don't have that. You've never had that. And if you did have it, you couldn't read it. I mean, you could, but (laughs) you're going to stumble. It's going to be very hard. Right. Then the people on the other side like to say there is no possibility to have a perfect English Bible. And so you have never had a perfect English Bible. Men over time have always ruined it and destroyed it and changed it and edited it and caused problems with it. And both are completely wrong. And somewhere in the middle is what actually happened. The King James Bible is the same today as it was in 1611 in terms of the words that are written in our Bible. But the punctuation is different. The orthography is different. And some of the italicized words are different. Those are extremely important distinctions to make. All right, so wherever the additions are uniform, the American copy is to remain the same. So if they look at all these additions and they, they all stayed the same in, in this text or that text, we're not even going to touch it. We're just going to leave it exactly as it is. We're not going to look into it. We're not going to see if we think there should be a change made. We're just going to leave it exactly as it is. They, they didn't change. They didn't. Make, they didn't go into it to make changes. They wanted to find uniformity. That's a big difference. Punctuation was reviewed 
Anywhere that three or more editions agreed in punctuation, the American edition was to follow. So any, any of the six editions who had the same punctuation, they didn't fight with it or argue with it or, or you know, try and make up their own. They, they just went along with what three of the editions had. Wherever the majority of editions agree to use hyphens for compound words, the American Bible would adopt the same. So they, you know, as you go through these rules, essentially what they did was put together a set of rules for changes they understood that had been made. And instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and, and use their own linguistic scholars to make up their own word of God, they took these major editions from 1611 to 1769 and they said, wherever the majority of them or a large number of them are the same, we're going to adopt that into our Bible, into the American standard this is not the American Standard Version, but the American standardized copy of the King James Bible. And I, I hate talking about the Bible in this way because it's hard to come to terms with, but it, it's what happened. So I can stand up here and I can shout and yell and tell you how wonderful the Bible is, and it is. And it is perfect. It is wonderful. But we've got to be honest about these updates that were made. Otherwise, I would have stood in front of you and lied. Now, if you prefer that, that's, that's up to you. But uh, I'm here to tell you the truth as best I know it. Um, now, in 1851, they published their findings. So from 1848 to 1851, this committee worked on this. And then in 1851, they published what they found. The result was a uniform, standardized King James Bible. The American Bible Society adopted this edition and produced what came to be known as the Octavo Reference Bible. This was a sort of study Bible that was the authorized version. So it was kind of one of the, um, one of the first attempts in America at a, at a uniform study Bible. All right, so they... They went through all this, and, the, and then this review committee found just under <laughs> 24,000 differences between all of these. The Cambridge, the Oxford, the London, the Edinburgh, and the 1611. That's hard for me to take in. <laughs> but, but now, again, the question is, what do you mean by differences? What was different? And, and that's extremely important. Right. It's the word of God. And, and, and I've said it already many times, but this, this is the part that really helped me. And I was thanking God for. Um, they found 24,000 differences between the respective editions. The, com- the committee happily reported that of these differences, there is not one which mars the integrity of the text or affects any doctrine or precept of the Bible. Now, that is incredible. How is it possible that that could happen? God is preserving his word. You want to change punctuation? Okay. Every word of God is pure. God never said anything about the punctuation. You want to change the spelling? That's fine. Bring it up to updated spelling. No problem. You want to change the, the orthography? You want, to make, you want to use a different type font? You want to use 
different standards when it comes to all that, no problem. Uh, you want to change the headings, the chapter headings, you want to change the marginal notes, who cares? Don't change my word. And that was not changed. These men reviewed six editions that span from 1611 to 1769. <laughs> 24,000 differences and not one of them damaged the word of God or changed the word of God in any, in any harmful way. That is God protecting his word. There's no other way to explain that. Men sat down with the intent to make changes to the King James Bible. And then 24,000 changes later, you still have the 1611 King James Bible. But different punctuation, different spelling. It's, it's incredible. It is phenomenal. I thank God for that. I, I'm telling you about it. When I'm studying this out and I'm making these notes, when I got to this point, I was just about to jump out of my chair and thank God for, for this note in, in the books I was studying because it's like, man, all these changes have been made to the Bible. Yeah. And it's still, and God kept it exactly the same, even in the hands of the men who were making these changes. That is, that just... That just further strengthens my resolve in this book and in the God who is protecting this book. You can't change this Bible. It's going to continue as it is. If, if it did get to the point that it's destroyed, it'll only be because God's word is somewhere else. <laughs> You're not going to get rid of the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. Now, I don't think that means... It will, it will be in the English language until the end of time. That may or may not happen. But it will exist here on earth for people to get their hands on and read and study and disperse around the world. It will be here somewhere, some way, somehow. And if the English-speaking people continue to try and cause harm to this book and they, and they just give up on it, what I think will happen is our numbers are in, in, in the English-speaking world are dwindling. So what I think will happen is people who speak English will just lose interest in it. But the, the book itself is not going anywhere. The people who read it are going to lose interest in it. And if China picks up the word of God, then that'll be the next power. If somebody in Africa picks up the word of God, that'll be the next power. Whoever is going to send out missionaries and spread God's word around the world, God's going to enable that country to be able to do it. And it's not the country, it's the people in that country who so love God's word that they will do everything they can to get it out into the hands of people all over the world. That's what America has done. That has been America's lifeline. When America has always protected Israel and sent out missionaries and Bibles all over the world. When they cease to do those two things, you can say goodbye to America. It will turn into another failed state. As long as they continue to do those things, there's a good chance God will continue to protect that country and it'll, it'll continue to do well. So we'll see how it goes. But we have the word of God. I, I, am, I am 100% confident in that. I, I don't care that somebody came in and, and updated my spelling. I, I actually wish I could thank that person. Because <laughs> when I try and read a 1611 King James Bible and I'm like, man, what? <laughs> When, when suffice is written like this, suffice. I mean, that's, if it's one word, I can work that out. 
But when it's hundreds of them on a page, <laughs> your Bible reading, you're not reading it through in a year. <laughs> You'll read a chapter in a year, <laughs> maybe a book in a year, but you're not going to read the whole Bible in a year. It's just you, what should happen is Bible believers should thank God for what we have. And this should further demonstrate to you that though it's gone through these these updates, God still refused to let them damage his word. It's incredible to me. It blows my mind. I'm excited about that. So they report that with the exception of printing errors made by the press, the editions they reviewed were all in line with the original 1611 edition. Every one of them. So that means... From 1611 to 1769, if you have any of those Bibles, you might have slightly different spelling. You might have slightly different uh, 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 punctuation, different grammatical structure, but you've got the King James Bible. You've got the English Bible. You've got the Word of God in the English language. And praise the Lord for that. So with, with the exception of typographical errors and of the changes conformed to and required by the progress, this is their, so they, they, they put out two statements. I'm going to give you these two statements. Um, with the exception of typographical errors and of the changes conformed to and required by the progress of orthography in the English language, the text of our English Bible remains unchanged and is without variation from the original copy as left by the translators. Now, if you'd have seen me in my office when I'm reading this, I, I'm telling you, I, I was just about in tears because I love the Bible. And I don't like teaching you that all these changes are made to the Bible, but man, it was a blessing to see that and to read that and to know that and to, and to again reinforce that the changes that were made were superficial. They did not change the Word of God. We have it today just easier to read (laughs) and praise the Lord for that and then the next quote they have is the English Bible as left by the translators has come down to us unaltered in respect of its text except in the changes of orthography which the whole English language has undergone to which the version has naturally and properly been conformed and accepting also the slight variations and discrepancies which in so long an interval must necessarily arise. So we're talking about 1611 to when they put this out, 1851. And, and, and the printing errors and things like that that existed, it's like they have to be there. There's just no way around it. So that, that's what they're talking about with those discrepancies. Which, which in so long an interval must necessarily arise by reason of human imperfection in the preparation and printing of so many millions of copies. And that was what Thomas Curtis was complaining about. Why are you making so many printing errors? He said, it's a disgrace. You need to fix this. This is the Bible. This is not a newspaper. Go make errors in the newspaper. Why do you print the newspaper properly, but you, but you won't take the time to print the Bible properly? And so that, that's what Thomas Curtis was going after. And these men said, except for those discrepancies, what you have today is the 1611 King James Bible. With better spelling, better punctuation, easier to read, and that is a blessing. 
The first KJV Bible to be printed with this new conformity was printed in 1851. From there, the American Bible Society continued to, to print this Bible as their standard, but it became more and more decorative and expensive. So they went overboard with it. They started making it. It had all this, these fancy engravings in it. It was, it was just a... It went from, let's get a Bible to the people, to let's create the most beautiful, ornate, you know, gold-lined, and, and just, just the most beautiful Bible anybody's ever seen. And people are like, I can't afford that. It's 1851. What do you think we do? It's like, I'm a farmer. I can't come buy some gold-encrusted, you know, Bible that you think what was a good idea to print in 1851. They just want a Bible that they can get their hands on, they can read, and they can take home. And so it became a problem. Um, and over time, people lost interest in it. Uh, but it continued to be the American standard, though there was also a work done by the American Episcopal Church. The American Episcopal Church went through a similar process. Um, but, but this Bible got more attention in America. And in the end, the American Bible Society's work was not widely accepted. So their work was very good. It was a great idea. And its findings were, were un, are unbelievably important. But then they went too far. And instead of just thinking about the common man who, just, who is practical and just wants a Bible in their hands, they started making these extremely fancy and very expensive copies of this Bible and people were like, well, we can't buy that. And so they lost interest. And so it became, it ended up being not very widely distributed. Now we go back to Oxford and Cambridge, who still had to settle on a standard. Oxford eventually remained with their 1769 version. So Oxford stuck with the 1769, which th- this Bible is still the standard for all Bibles today in terms of the, the layout, in terms of the, the punctuation, the grammar, um, the orthography. All, all, all that is still the standard even for, for all Bibles today, even though they might make some, some slight changes to which previous text they, they went with in terms of the spelling and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and uh, you, you'll see what I mean in just a minute. That, that'll make more sense in just a moment. So Oxford went with the 1769 text, um, and, the, and, and the one they use today is mildly different. It's pretty much the same. So my other, my Allen Bible that I have at home, it's the, it's the Oxford text, and that's why it has spirit lowercase in Matthew 4.1 and in Mark 1.12, and then fleeth instead of flieth and, and some other, some other uh, slight changes. And so that... Though that, that was the best in terms of grammar, punctuation, orthography, 1769 was, was the best. It became the standard for everybody. But not everybody agreed or, or enjoyed the spelling. <clears throat> Cambridge abandoned their 1762 edition. By the early 1800s, Cambridge attempted to create an odd mixture of KJV editions to substitute, substitute their own text. Cambridge kind of got lost in the mix. They, they were, you know, they were really banking on this 1762 edition, 
And it, and it died out, and Oxford kind of won out with the 1769, and then you had the American Bible Society producing their standardized text, and, and so Cambridge just kind of got lost. Like, we don't know what to do. So they, they, they took, kind of like what the American Society, you know, Bible Society did, but, but the difference is the American Bible Society created that six-column book, and you could see exactly what they did. They were very specific, very clear. You knew the process they used to come to their conclusion. Well, when people ask Cambridge, where did you get this Bible that you came out with um, in the 1800s? And they're like, we don't know. (laughs) What do you mean you don't know? It's not your 1762 and it's not the 1769. There are some mild differences. How did you come to the conclusion to print this text? They're like, we don't know how we did it. What do you mean you don't know how you did it? And so nobody wanted to use it. So everybody stuck with Oxford. And they just abandoned Cambridge. And Cambridge just kind of, I mean, was dying out in terms of Bible printing until they could get this figured out. And so um, they were unable to give an account of how they came to create this text. It was clear that they used Oxford 1769, but they also used editions that went as far back as 1629. So they... They just took from 16 to 29 to 1769. It looks like they took Bibles and then they would pick and choose which ones they wanted to use where. But they had no explanation of how they did that. Now, if they would have just told people this is what we did, it would have been fine because people really liked this Bible. But it really bothered them that Cambridge couldn't explain. How did you come up with this? Is you have to remember, all right, as we talk about this, you have to keep in your mind from 1611 to 1769, any of these editions is the King James Bible. They just they have different punctuation, they have different spelling, but if you have any Bible from here to here, you have the Word of God in your hands. So anything from 17, 1611 to 1769, if a printer uses the 1629 edition, it's the Word of God. You have no problem. It might be a little, It might have some different spelling. It might have different punctuation. But it is the King James Bible. All right. So if Cambridge would have told people, this is the process we used. We went back to 1629 to 1769, and we put a Bible together to create our own standard text. And here's what we came up with. People really liked the Bible, but it really bothered them that Cambridge couldn't tell them. Where did it come from? How did you make it? How did you decide to use what you used? And, and so it, it, it just, people gave up on it. Uh, it was clear that they used 1769 to 1629. Uh, Thomas Curtis embarrassed Cambridge over these inconsistencies. Though the text seemed to be a good one, Cambridge could not explain with any integrity how they came to create it. That is important. You're dealing with God's word. You can't just throw something out and expect people to say, okay, we'll take that. You need to explain to them what it is you're offering them. They want to know, what did you do to this book? Uh, I have a Bible at home. I I was so excited to buy it because it it, it was a Cambridge Bible. And uh, it's in in paragraph form. and And it's considered the easiest Bible in the world to read. And so I got one for me and one for my wife. And the plan was my wife and I would sit together and next to each other in our chairs and we'd read the Bible together. Well, I found out later 
that the man, the man's name is David Norton, I believe is his name, that put it out. He took the liberty to edit it and to change it. So it is not the 1611 King James Bible. He's, he made changes to it. Now, I don't, know, I don't know to what extent he made changes. He put out a few books detailing those changes. If he changed punctuation and he changed you know, orthography, no problem. But if he changed the text of the Word of God, we got a problem. It's a useless book. I don't care if it's one word. I don't want changes to my Bible. Leave it alone. 1769, the people said, we're, we're good. We're done. We don't need to make any more changes. It's over. 24,000 changes have been made between multiple editions of the King James Bible. And up to this point, God has refused to allow you to change his word. It's modern. It's good. It's readable. Leave it alone. Don't do anything else to it. And so this guy comes along and he makes this Bible. And so I, I don't know if it's readable yet or not. So, um, I mean, that, that gets under my skin. Why would you do that? Why would you call it the King James Bible? Why don't you call it something else? You know, call it the David Norton Bible. Based on the King James Version. I don't, I don't care. But let people know that what they're not getting is what they think they're buying. I thought I was buying a King James Bible. And, and now it turns out that it's, it may or may not be. And so now I got to go through and find out what is this? What, you know, what did you change in this book? Which is aggravating. So uh, Thomas Curtis went after him, said, you, you need to, you have no integrity. You need to be able to demonstrate to people what you did here or, or, or it's a problem. We don't want it. And the people didn't want it. It bothered them. At this point, even for Cambridge, the 1769 text became their standard. So they put out this 1800s Bible. People looked at it and said, it's good, but how did you do that? What did you cut? You know, I can see some 1629 in it. I can see some 1631 in it. I see some 1769 in it. How, what, was your, what was your process? You know, the, the American Standard, the American Bible Society, they, they put out this book. They published it. I can go get a copy of it. I can see the notes they made. I can see the decisions they made. I can see how they came to their conclusions. How did you come to yours? Mm, we don't know. I'm not buying it. <laughs> I don't want the Bible. I don't want anything to do with it. You don't know how you came up with the Word of God? <laughs> you just kind of threw something together and spit it out of a printer? Hey, what, what happened here? And so Thomas, Thomas Curtis went after him. And um, at this point, they, they, they just decided, okay, we'll throw that out. And we're just going to print the 1769 Oxford edition. Now, in 1931, <clears throat> Cambridge made one more change that was their lifeline. And because of this change, the Cambridge text is the preferred text of Bible believers around the world today, especially in America. They will fight you. You got an Oxford you know, you've got the Oxford text. You don't even believe the Bible. <laughs> Shut up. It's just ridiculous. It's just something else to fight with people over. And, and, and it's not even a worthy fight. It's not, it's not like, you know, if they came in with an NIV, okay, maybe we need to talk to them. But they come in with an Oxford versus a Cambridge. You, you should probably get over yourself. 
Because you're, 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 you're sowing discord when the book in your hand tells you not to sow discord. And so in 1931, Cambridge did, did a very good thing that, that probably saved them. By 1931, Cambridge made a few spelling changes to the 1769 text, and it became the official text of the Bible. What they did in 1931, they took the 1769 Bible and they used the 1611 spelling. Now, when I say spelling, I don't mean orthography. I mean, instead of fleeth, it says flieth. Instead of lowercase spirit in Matthew 4.1, it's capital spirit, like the King James Bible. This edition came to be known as the Cambridge Concord. And even now, if you go buy a Cambridge Bible, it'll be labeled in some way, and you can buy a Concord Bible. So when you buy the Cambridge Concord, you're buying this 1931 Bible that is the 1769 Oxford Foundation with the 1611 spelling. That leads us to today. The modern King James Bible is essentially the 1769 Oxford Bible, but with more modern spelling and punctuation. The Bible needs no further updates or changes. It is as clear and accurate as can be without causing damage to the text or to Christian doctrine. At this point, you could not modernize the Bible anymore. I don't think it's possible. And the proof is that every single time someone has tried, they, they damage the Bible. They cause harm to the text. Okay, they're, they're not just dealing with punctuation. They're not just dealing with grammar. They're not just dealing with chapter headings. They're, you know, they're, they're dealing with the actual foundational text as brought to us by the King James translators. And the American Bible Society said... We examined the top six editions, compared them to the 1611, and we found that not one time out of 24,000 changes did they cause harm to the Word of God. That is not true from the revised version on. That has not been true of any modern Bible. All right, so all other modern attempts to create an accurate English Bible are destructive. So what the Bible needs today are strict obedience and strict preservation. Rather than trying to make a new Bible, why don't you just try to obey the one you have? You know, my pastor was invited, I don't know if I might have told you this, but um, he was invited to preach at this meeting, and there was lots of, you know, big, important preachers there. And um, he was just a young pastor at the time. And uh, they, they, they were preaching on on why we use the King James Bible to a crowd of people who already use the King James Bible. So that, that was his first problem is, you know, why aren't you preaching something to the crowd that will help them? They already believe the King James Bible. So it just became kind of a, again, it's, it's just a bubble. You, you get in this bubble where, where we all just affirm or confirm what we believe. We, we never get challenged. We just kind of, we have these buzzwords that we can repeat to each other and make everybody cheer and and uh, we never really learn or grow in any way because we're never challenged in any way. And so it's his turn to preach. And he gets up and he's and, and men who have preached before him went on and on about how you cannot get saved unless you have a King James Bible. <laughs> so he gets up and he's like, you can only be saved from a King James Bible. And the crowd goes crazy. They're yelling, Woo, amen, praise God, that's right. And, 
and they're going on and on. He's like, I don't, you're, you're going straight to hell if you don't have a King James Bible. And the crowd's cheering, and he's going on and on and on. And then he says, but let me ask you, how many of you got saved with an NIV? And people are like, they start raising their hands. It's like, you were just cheering. When these men said, you can't get saved unless you have a King James Bible, you didn't get, you didn't get saved out of a King James Bible. You don't even believe that. Why are you yelling and shouting and cheering for that? And so from there, he went on to preach. What, what difference does it make? What version you disobeyed when you stand before God? <laughs> so should you use a King James Bible? Absolutely. But wouldn't it be better to obey it? Wouldn't it be better to do what it said? You have people who will fight you over the King James Bible won't do a word of what it says. They hadn't read it in a year, but they will tell you, you've got to have a King James Bible. All right, well, when you start reading it, you come let me know. We can talk. Till then, I don't want to hear what you have to say. So, all right, with the last few minutes, let's get started on this next topic. Modern versions. You can't even get saved if you have a modern version. All right. I got saved. I had an English standard version. So either I'm going to hell or maybe I got right and got a King James Bible. So God's going to let me in heaven now. Or salvation is based upon faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so I would just stick with that. And, um, and if you do that and have a King James Bible, it's even better. So praise the Lord. All right. After the printing of the King James Bible, men began to complain about the strict biblical language. Oh, poor guys. King James Bible was too narrow. You know, it's not inclusive. It's, it's too strict. It's too harsh. We need to fix it. So many of these men were, were deist over time. The men who, who have caused the most harm by trying to produce modern translations. Most of them were, that's an E, you, you know that. You're used to my writing by now. Um, they were deist, which means they believe in a God, but they don't really care who he is. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he is. They just, you know, uh, one of the most famous deists is uh, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. He's one of the founding fathers of the, of the of the United States of America. <clears throat> and everyone likes to say America is a Christian nation. <laughs> uh, at no point has America ever been a Christian nation, N- not even slightly. Now, now, it just so happened that the men who established the United States of America, to some extent, established our country on biblical principle. And so it has, the country has worked. The Bible says, righteousness exalteth a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. So the more, the more your country conforms to biblical principle, not that it's Christian, the more it conforms to biblical principle, the better your country will operate. And the more America gets away from that, the worse, the worse we do and, and the more we fall. And uh, so these men were deists. And, and so t- anyways, the reason I tell you that, Thomas Jefferson, he made his own Bible. Because he was a deist, he didn't believe in any miracles. So he removed any miracles from the Bible and, and had it printed, and it was called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And you can even get a copy today. Any of the miracles Jesus did, he removed them. He thought it was, he thought like philosophers. It's important for its 
moral and philosophical teaching, but it's not the perfect word of God. So you need it to help kind of guide you morally, but you don't need it to help have your sins forgiven and have a relationship with God. And that, that's basically what a deist is. So in 1729, we, we, start the, we start the downfall, we start the process of modern versions. All the way back then, uh, maybe, there may have even been some sooner, but a man named Daniel Mace published a Greek New Testament, and soon after, he published an English version. Who has a rough idea of what Matthew 6, 16 says? Let, let's just look at it. It's just... You know, I, one of the other reasons I could never use these Bibles is because they're so ridiculous. What they say is so corny. So Matthew 16, sorry, 6, verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, that is beautifully written, unbelievably concise, unbelievably clear. And that is a lot of information in one little verse. Here's how he, here's how he, he has that verse. When you fast, do not put on a dismal air as the hypocrites do. <laughs> yeah. I guess you want me to tell you what a dismal air is. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> That is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Don't put on, get, take off that dismal air. <laughs> get that dismal air off your face. It just, it makes no sense. Um, look, 1 Corinthians 13, let's look at that and see how he handled that text. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind, Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Now, there's something very important you need to know about 1 about, uh, uh, Corinthians 13. What is the topic of this chapter? Charity. So when you hear somebody say, 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love, what have they done? They've changed it. Because they're basing it on what they think, what they think it should be, according to the Greek. The Bible says charity. It does not say love. This is not the love chapter. It's about charity. And so what what in fact, a man that I really respect came to Uganda recently and taught us in, in our uh, uh, BIMU conference and he probably doesn't realize he did it, which tells me a lot about what he's reading at home. He referenced a, a verse from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and he said, love, not charity, which means he's either reading a modern version or, or he doesn't believe the Bible that he has. He thinks God messed this word up. It's like, God, come on, man. It should be, it should be love, not charity. How'd you mess this up so bad? And all of them, one of, one of my favorite writers that I study from, he's got a whole, whole book about love. And the whole book is about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So these are little cues. When you read in your Bible, it says charity, and the person standing in front of you says love, now you know what's happening. 
That person doesn't trust what God gave them in this book. They have been taught, they have been told, you got to go back to the Greek and you got to correct God. Because God really messed this chapter up. It's the love chapter, not the charity chapter. And so, let's see what our friend over here did. All right, so, so let me read it again. Verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Right? This man says, social affection is patient, is kind. <laughs> I mean, it's close to the same, right? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. James 3. Let's look at this one. Oh, this one is, <laughs> this one is interesting. James 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. I am, I am telling you, the way that's worded and the amount of information that is packed in there and so beautifully written, there is nothing in the world like it. And you're about to find out why. Because <laughs> men are stupid. So this is what he says. The tongue is a brand that sets the whole world in a combustion. <laughs> Tipped with infernal sulfur, it sets the whole train of life in a blaze. <laughs> do you see when you try to do this without God you see how stupid it is it's just I wouldn't read that if it was what the King James translators came up with it's ridiculous but that's not what they came up with so needless to say have you ever heard of, the, of this 1729 New Testament no there's a reason you've never heard of it nobody cared it was stupid so they rejected it so that, that didn't stop the, stop the matter, though. In 1768, so we, we started in 1729, 1768, Edward Hardwood published a New Testament translation. He said this translation was a liberal and diffusive version of the sacred classics. Now, when he starts it with a liberal, it means I took the liberty to do to it what I want. So you don't have to worry about the strict wording of that, of that mean King James Bible. Come check out my Bible. It's nice and liberal. It's loving and all-inclusive and comes with a pair of skinny jeans. He said his purpose was to allure the youth by the innocent stratagem of modern style to read a book, which is now, alas, too generally neglected and disregarded by the young. He said, the young aren't reading the Bible, so I'm going to make a new, fun to read, a Bible that will catch the attention of the young people. And that's always who they go after. And you stay away from my child. You're never bringing that stuff in my house. You think Thomas Curtis was mean? Wait till you meet Thomas Irvin. <laughs> Around this time, Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of America, produced a modern version of part of Job chapter 1. No one took these efforts seriously. In fact, they were just as much of a joke now as they, as they were then. But serious attempts to replace the King James Bible with corrupt books would come later. By the middle of the 19th century, anybody remember this name? Tischendorf. Tischendorf began lobbying the intellectuals in Britain. He and his colleague, 
one of his, his close colleagues, uh, Trajellas, another good name for you. Uh, you hadn't, you hadn't heard, any, heard any difficult names in a while, so we'll throw out Trajellas and give that to you. He convinced British scholars that Textus Receptus was an inferior text. Now, why would he do that? Just take a wild guess with what you know about Tischendorf. Why would he attack the Textus Receptus? Not the King James Bible, but the Textus Receptus. Who thinks they know? Come on, you need to get these wheels turning and start thinking about this stuff. Remember, he found a text. Where did he find it? In the trash in a monastery at St. Catherine's. So in order to get hit, in order to become infamous in the world, he's going to put his text against the Texas Receptus. And if you destroy the Texas Receptus, what do you also end up tearing down? The King James Bible. So now he's going to create this, he's going to create this debate. I have this new text, but it's older. It's older than the Texas Receptus. So mine must be correct. It must be the right one. And the Texas Receptus is inferior. And if the Texas Receptus is inferior, then the King James Bible is also inferior. So we're going to use my text and, and create a new Bible. That's what he began pushing for. Um, if this is so, then, then according to them, the King James Bible is also inferior. They did not attack the translation work necessarily. They went back to the source, to the Texas Receptus. You, I mean, you talk about a trick. They didn't go after the King James Bible. They didn't go after the translators. They said your starting point was all wrong. Your starting point was completely inferior. But we can help you with that. We have this new text. Oh, where'd you get that? Don't worry about that. <laughs> why's, it, why's it got this ashes on it? Don't worry about that either. <laughs> somebody might, it might have been in the trash, and somebody might have been using it to start fires. But that's, that's not important. And, and it worked. Um, this push for revising the KJV reached its peak in 1870. When the Church of England assembled a committee to work on a revision of the Bible. Let's think about this again. If you're the devil and you need to reproduce your own Bible to break people away from the real Bible. And you're going to put together a committee of people of translators to help you with this. How many would you choose? 54. He chose 54 men to put on his translation team, just like the King James Bible. Very interesting. Half were assigned to the Old Testament and half to the New Testament. One of the most influential members of the New Testament committee was Mr. Hort. Those are his initials, yeah. F.J.A. Hort. He would eventually deceive the committee into using... What did he deceive them into using? His own text. To me, it's funny. All right, so... You have Tischendorf who says, the Textus Receptus is inferior. I have a better text. It was in a trash can, but that's okay. I cleaned the trash off. And so he convinces the, the British intellectuals, we've got to make this new Bible. So they get together and they're making the new Bible, only to find out later <laughs> they didn't even use 
the supposed better text, Hort tricked him into using his own text that he made. And this gave you the revised version of the Bible. What a bunch of devils. They completed the New Testament in 1880. That was the New Testament. Uh, It was published May of 1881. Within just a few days of its publishing. Now, this is 1881 England, right? Within a few days of its publishing, two million copies were quickly sold in London. Two million copies. It was the big hit they were all hoping for. And they made a lot of money. 365,000 copies were sold in New York. 110 copies were sold and 110,000 copies were sold in Philadelphia. The Old Testament was complete in 1885. But the Old Testament was not met with the same excitement. By the time the Old Testament was complete, people were no longer interested in the revised version. So you had this big surge with the New Testament, and then four years later, so it's, it's the, the New Testament is finished in 1880, published in 1881. Four years later, they published the Old Testament, and people are like, I mean, if it's anything like your New Testament, <laughs> we're really not interested. And so, so it seemed to lose steam, um, but it's still around, unfortunately. In fact, this Bible... This is where the Luganda Bible came from. So it came from here. And, and there, his Old Testament as well. Or uh, It wasn't his own text, but uh, um, I didn't look into it to, to verify. But my guess is they used the Septuagint and, and te- texts like that for their, their Old Testament. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.